Welcome along to the Care Team Sessions podcast. This is a podcast of our monthly CPD event. For those that aren't already familiar with us, the West Midlands Care Team is a charity pre-hospital enhanced care team operating in the Birmingham area for over 30 years now. Care Team Sessions CPD events have something for all clinical levels from community responders right through to experienced in-hospital clinicians, along with medics and other services like fire and police. We want to share the team's knowledge and experience with you, so Care Team Sessions is free to attend or listen back to on this podcast. But it's also an opportunity to raise money for the charity to help us continue to do the work we do. If you'd like a CPD certificate for listening to this podcast, we ask for a donation of £5. Details of how to donate and claim your CPD certificate are in the podcast description. Also, don't forget to give us a follow on social media. You can find us at WM Care Team. In this podcast, care team paramedic Luke Chadbourne will take us through two thoracotomy cases. One he attended as a paramedic with the ambulance service and the second as a member of the West Midlands care team. This should provide a very interesting perspective on all aspects related to this type of case and there are some valuable take-home points in each case. This will be part one of a two-part podcast on thoracotomy. Part two will feature a more in-depth look at the intervention itself by care team doctor Lewis Miller. But for now, here's Luke to talk about his cases. Tonight I'm going to talk to you uh, about two cases uh, relating to resuscitative thoracotomy, obviously in the pre-hospital environment. Uh, The first case I was actually working as a paramedic, uh, working out of Warwick, um, and we were Crews first on scene uh, ended up being backed up by some of the enhanced care teams and this uh, procedure was undertaken. And then the second case I was working at at the time as a trainee on the care team uh, and we attended, uh, we requested as part of the initial call from control uh, and we undertook that procedure as well. So going to slightly two different uh, perspectives, hopefully you'll be able to draw uh, some, some of my reflections and some tips and some learning points. So these cases were October and November 2021, so not that long ago, still reasonably fresh in the mind. So I just thought, I didn't want to take it for granted that people knew what this procedure was. Now Lewis, uh, speaking afterwards, is going to talk a lot more in depth about uh, this, why we do it, what we do exactly. Um, But in terms of understanding what I'm talking about as well, I'll just very quickly go through it. Thoracostomy is effectively the more uh, more definitive a procedure that the enhanced care teams uh, can do uh, over and above the paramedic needle chest decompression. Uh, so it's done for relieving tension pneumothorax uh, and it's also done as part of a, a bundle of care for traumatic cardiac arrest. Uh, it leads on to thoracotomy. Obviously those two terms could be easily confused, there's only one letter in it. Uh, thoracotomy is effectively a surgical incision across the chest um, that allows the provider access to the, the inside of that patient uh, and if they can find a problem and, and fix it in simple terms. Known colloquially as, as opening the chest. Okay, so you will hear it uh, referred like that in the field sometimes. So that just gives you an idea of a couple of the terms we'll be talking about. So, case one. I was, so I was working on a double crewed ambulance. Uh, I had two tector paras with me, so two clinicians who are able to do paramedic skills, not sign off as a paramedic yet. Uh, we were on our way back from a, a, another job. We pinged a, a category one cardiac arrest, that's how it came up on the screen. The only information we got initially was it was a suicide. Anybody got any thoughts just purely on that information? What would spring to mind, the nature of the job, 
the nature of the mechanism of why it would be a, a cardiac arrest or a CAT1. Any thoughts at all? Hypoxic, so you're going down the line of, of a hanging, something like that. That's quite a typical suicide. Certainly that's what kind of sprung on into my head. The information we got next was that it was a stabbing. So we were taken back a little bit uh, on the way to this. We okay, okay, doesn't really fit in, in my head, doesn't make sense in my head that somebody would stab themselves to death effectively. Um, but we, we ran with it. We're only a few minutes from the job. We arrived at scene. Uh, we were the second double crewed ambulance. We arrived nine seconds, two minutes behind the first one. Now, the first crew had had a verbal update because they were just about to turn up at the job and control obviously didn't have time to type it out like they normally would. So they only rang that crew. So when we got out and, and spoke to them, they said, oh, we've had an update. It's not a cardiac arrest. Uh, the patient's apparently talking. Uh, they went on to say, we probably don't need you, okay. And I said, okay, well, we're here now. So um, they were literally about to go in, they got the bags. We said, we'll just get a little bit of our gear together and we'll follow you in just in case uh, we needed. So absolutely on the doorstep of the Alex uh, in Redditch. Um, and I put on, just for information really, uh, two other hospitals, uh, Worcester uh, and Queen Elizabeth Hospital. <laughs> Any idea why, why I've put those two on there in particular? Yeah, so, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital is the major trauma centre for the area uh, and Worcester is a trauma unit. Um, the Alex is just down as a local emergency hospital. Um, so it's useful to have an idea of these type of things. So straight away I'm thinking, chest stabbing, we can't really take this to the Alex um, and we probably aren't going to be able to take it to Worcester. But there's certain scenarios when you might do. But off the top of my head I'm thinking this is probably one way or another going to end up at, at the QE. We were at scene at 7.24, so a couple of minutes later we were at the patient uh, and this is the primary patient assessment. So he had a major hemorrhage on the floor around him but it looked like it was a little bit congealed uh, which made me think the blood had been out of the body for obviously for at least a couple of minutes. The evidence says it can be maybe five, ten minutes before it starts to congeal. It depends the amount of blood and, and what it's actually on. Um, the patient wasn't actively bleeding though. Uh, his airway appeared clear, but he himself wasn't talking, despite the update. He was bradypneic, he was gasping, taking these really big, exaggerated breaths in. We found that he actually had an absent radial, but when uh, we felt his carotid, it was rapid. Uh, we didn't get a rate at the time. Uh, it was weak and it was rapid. He was responsive to pain, that took quite a pain stimulus. Um, and he did uh, have a response to pain. And just to set the scene in the room, he was sat on the floor with his back against kind of the, the sofa seats. Uh, he was topless, really pale, really clammy. Uh, and all we could see initially was a single stab wound uh, to the left of his chest. That brings me on briefly to talk about something called the cardiac box. So this is a photo of me. And I've drawn on it, <laughs> obviously it's not. Um, this is obviously a, a torso, and I will explain this, obviously you can see it, but we are recording this for the, the podcast as well. Um, this idea of a cardiac box is an area where there is evidence to say, and it makes sense if you, you, know, if you think about it, that if there is a penetrating injury to this area, it's more than likely uh, that it could involve the heart. Um, so it's a, a line that goes across uh, 
kind of the line of the clavicles goes down at the midclavicular line and joins on at the costal margin kind of across the ziphy sternum um, and you could absolutely take that and, and put it on the back of the patient as well anything in that area worries us and the stab wound for this gentleman was there as you can see um, just to the left of his chest um, not far from the nipple smack bang where you would be worried about being stabbed initial interventions so any of you been to this session or one of the sessions recently sorry uh, a couple of my colleagues have talked about coma now that's an accepted uh, part of our care team uh, initial assessment and initial treatment uh, and that's an acronym that stands for close off C is for close off so we made sure we got the rest of his clothes off so we got him trauma naked uh, we had a really quick look for any other stab wounds because what we didn't want to do obviously uh, is miss a lot of blood coming out somewhere else it's really easy to be focused on what you can clearly see as a catastrophic wound and what you don't want to do is, is miss something else uh, equally bad. Within a, a minute or so, this was kind of all going on at the same time. Within a minute or so, we'd stuck a Russell's chest seal on there. Owen coma is for oxygen. Now, all these major trauma patients realistically need high flow oxygen initially. And then if you can later on, you would titrate it back. So we got a 15 litre non-rebreather and we very quickly uh, stuck an OPA in him, which he was tolerating. M in coma is for monitoring. Um, so appropriate monitoring, we recognised this uh, gentleman was not very well at all, so he got the pads straight away. Um, we got a rate of around 140 uh, beats per minute. It was a narrow complex. Uh, BP you can see on there, 55 over 30. From what I can remember, it was the second one. The first one came up as unreadable and the SATS probe came up as unreadable. And the A in coma stands for access. Now this is in twofold. First of all is access from ourselves to the patient. Now he was not in a very good position for us to help him. Uh, we wanted to be able to get to him properly. So as a team, we pretty much just dragged him into the middle of the room, got ourselves 360 access to him. That way someone can properly control the airway. We can get to both sides of him for getting intravenous access. As is the second uh, point of access is to get some access into the uh, vascular system. Now this chat was peripherally very, very shut down. Uh, we had a very quick look at both ACFs, could not see a thing. Um, so a decision was taken to IO and we got him in the proximal tibia and some fluids were set up. So at this point I stepped outside the room and I said, uh, I'm going to update uh, channel 80. So I should say that we'd been put on a, a major incident channel 80. So we already knew the care team, um, sorry, the uh, critical care teams were, were coming. Uh, in one way or the other um, but it's really important and, and Pete who's not here tonight uh, drilled into me that he wanted me to tell you guys particularly who work in the ambulance service uh, you cannot underestimate how important it is for that early update to go in um, either to trauma desk or to the major incident channel um, it will become clear a little bit later obviously it makes sense these guys are coming to help you they're going to be formulating their own ideas on the way um, so if, if you can give them a really concise update and my update, it, it wasn't an at mist, uh, it wasn't great. It was 10 seconds or so. Uh, it was, this chap's really unwell. He's got a single stab wound. I think he needs blood. We want to know when you guys are, are going to arrive. Uh, and the message we got back there or thereabouts was, it's really important. We need to know the time that 
if and when he loses output? Can you make sure that you note that time? So I'm gonna talk a little bit about drug therapy that we did with this guy. So any thoughts on relevant drugs that we might give? TXA, anything else? Sodium chloride, fluids, exactly. Certainly from a, a, an ambulance paramedic point of view, fluids is all we've got to, well, we think this, this guy's bleeding out. Um, fluids is all we carry uh, to try and replace that. So what does JR Calc say about fluids? Has anybody got any idea of the kind of blood pressure targets for penetrating? 90 systolic. 90 systolic. And any advance on 90? Yeah, so they're both correct in a way. So they, they are set into two separate uh, scenarios. Blunt head and penetrating limb trauma uh, is targeted for a, a palpable radial pulse or a systolic BP of 90. And then your more central penetrating torso trauma in the case of this guy is quite different, is a palpable carotid, so central pulse, or a systolic BP of 60. Now, the reason behind that is the idea of permissive hypotension and accepting uh, a lower blood pressure in order that you're actually still maintaining um, perfusion to his absolute vital organs without increasing the cardiac output too much, increasing his blood pressure too much that actually deteriorates faster. So the indications for TXA for this gentleman, there were numerous ones if you go away and look at in your jail calc. Um, he hit it in, in loads of different ways. There's some of them on here. So he had signs of actual and suspected severe hemorrhage. He had the BP lower than 90. He had an absent radial. He had a heart rate above 110. He was triggering stage one of the major trauma tool. Any idea? Other than the blood pressure, why would be triggering stage one? So stage one of the tool uh, is his bradypneia as well. Now I haven't put a rate on there. Um, off the top of my head, he was only going at six or eight breaths a minute. And absent radial. Absent radial kind of goes in hand with the blood pressure, um, but it's not that one. The other one on there is his GCS. Now again, I haven't given you a GCS for him, but he was only responsive to pain. Um, so his GCS motor score was, was four or lower. So he triggers stage one as well. Once you trigger stage one, uh, you don't have to go on to stage two, uh, although he certainly triggers on stage two for penetrating trauma. Other reasons to give TXA indications wise, he's triggering that we need to give him fluids. He's had trauma, he's triggering for fluids. That is its own indication. And traumatic arrest. Now he's not there yet, um, but spoiler alert. Now, TXA. Hopefully you're comfortable with the idea that this is not necessarily the drug that's going to instantly make a difference with this chap. Uh, it's something we must give, but it must never uh, come before all the other critical interventions that, that this gentleman needs. So while we voiced about giving him TXA, we didn't give it at that point um, because we were effectively busy doing other things. Um, in a kind of Ideal scenario, you do give it as soon as you can, and sometimes there are enough hands on scene and someone can go away and draw it up and it can be given. This brings me on to signs that uh, our patient was displaying that told us that he was bleeding or had bled a lot. Uh, and it's the idea of the hateful eight, uh, which again is something that the uh, enhanced care teams talk about as uh, signs of hemorrhagic shock. 
So before I display these, um, can we shout some ideas out? So there's eight signs that suggest that somebody is in hypovolemic or, or hemorrhagic shock. Some of them are like observation signs, some of them are symptoms the patient will have. Any thoughts? Pallor, yeah, pale. So, yeah, that is one of them. Absent radial. Absent radial, yeah. Any more? Air hunger. Air hunger, brilliant, yes, air hunger. Altered mental status. Altered mental status, yeah, reduced GCS or reduced level of consciousness, yeah. Yeah, technically it's not a sign, but it would certainly trigger you to go towards thinking about these. So I'll blast through them and then we'll work out what this chat had. So yes, number one, and these are just done alphabetically for ease. So air hunger, abnormal heart rate. So here's your absent radial technically, but we're talking about the rate. Now note there that it's tachycardia or bradycardia. We should never be reassured by bradycardia. Um, there are a number of cases where somebody who's known to be bleeding significantly is displaying bradycardia, not tachycardia. Now that might be a, a response by the body or it might be that the patient is very quickly kind of decompensating and he, he was tachy but you didn't catch him at that point and he's kind of peri-arrest. Altered mental status, yes, so reduced GCS. Collapsed veins, so he's not got enough blood in his system to keep his veins uh, popping. Hypotensive, that's one of the obvious ones. Low or falling end tidal CO2. Pallor and being clammy or sweaty. Just thinking back to my gentleman, I said he was gasping so we can put that down as, as air hunger. His body was kind of automatically trying to take in as much air as he, as he could. He was tachycardic. He had reduced GCS. We said that we couldn't get a, a vein on him. So we'd say he had collapsed veins. We know he was hypotensive. And I'd said in the primary survey, he was pale and he was sweaty. So he's hitting seven out of the eight. And the CO2, we didn't know at that point. Um, chances are it would have been low. So clinical cause. So our progression during this job. Uh, so we were at the patient at 26, uh, 7.26. I stepped out around 7.30, updated the talk group. Um, we were told we need to know the, the time of the loss of output, um, which we got that on uh, extrication from the house. The OM and the police turned up. Uh, we scooped the gentleman and put him on the ambulance stretcher. Uh, by this point, his respiratory effort had started to uh, degrade quite rapidly. So he tolerated an eye gel at this point. We did have a CO2 on him. It was low uh, and he was being bagged and the patient lost palpable carotid pulse mid-extrication. Uh, as we got into the back of the ambulance, which is about a minute from the house, uh, everybody descended at the same time. So we had a basic responder, which was actually um, Andy Thugs, who is one of the directors of the care team. He works as a basic responder as well. And we had the CCP car and the Helimed car. So the scene suddenly became really busy. And as we were pulling him up the uh, uh, ramp onto the ambulance, they were shouting up, does he still have a pulse? The response was no, um, and they all descended on the ambulance. All the enhanced care teams are now on the ambulance. It was just me now sat in the airway seat, six or seven other people. Not an ideal scenario uh, to be doing this on the ambulance. It's not great for space, and it is a procedure that you really do need to be able to get to both sides of the patient. 
but it's just how it fell on that job um, and it's not always going to be the ideal scenario. Um, so they'd lost, the patient, sorry, had lost output uh, two or three minutes um, before thoracotomy was performed. So it happened really quickly because they'd had that early update and they knew as soon as they turned up, they knew he'd lost output and they will have talked about it on the way. If he loses output, are we going to go to thoracotomy? So he got bilateral thoracostomies. He was intubated. He got his thoracotomy. A cardiac wound was found and repaired uh, with some uh, surgical staples. Really good repair job. Uh, he had heart massage. So we haven't mentioned CPR at any point. So this gentleman did not get any external CPR. Um, once his physical heart was accessed through the chest, he got heart massage. He got another point of access, so he got humeral head IO access, and he got blood products. This probably all happened within, realistically, 10, certainly most of it, five minutes uh, from when all that team stepped on. Um, and that was absolutely everything that could be done for him. So, what was the outcome? I'll tell you in a bit. So, case two. So, remember case two, so I was working on the care team as a trainee. Uh, there was three of us on the team. Uh, Dr. Hadassah, uh, who has been happy for me to say it was her, uh, and one of her other colleagues. So, there's three of us. Ping, cat one. Abdominal stabbing. Again, that's all we got initially. Any different thoughts, either to the first job or any new thoughts? So, what would be going through your head? What do you think was going through our heads? Anything? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Harder to manage potentially. Why is it a cat one? Why is it a cat one? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why is it a cat one? What would make it a cat one? Is he peri arrest and they've not mentioned that? Is he in cardiac arrest? They've not mentioned that. The other thing that was going through our heads that I didn't really touch on on the first case was who's done this stabbing to him. Uh, the first one we got as a self-stabbing now, we could have talked a little bit more about that. Uh, we, and on, on my reflection for the first case, kind of took it a little bit for granted that that was indeed what had happened. And thankfully that was what had happened. There was no danger to us because the gentleman had self-harmed. This one did not come through as a self-harm. So we're thinking an assault, we're thinking attempted murder. This could be dangerous. Um, Thankfully, we got an update that the police were already there and the scene was safe. We're about 10 minutes out from this job. Then we got an update that the OM was there. And then we were about five minutes out. We got an update from the OM. There are no signs of life. CPR from the police is in progress. So at that point in the car, Adas is leading us in a little bit of a chat about exactly what we're going to be doing when we get there. Then um, these are not long involved conversation. These are okay. It sounds like we may be progressing to thoracotomy. Okay, are you happy to go away and set up the blood? Yes. And to, to myself, Luke, uh, you'll be helping me with the procedure. Okay. That's about it. You don't want to overthink these things because it's not always true, as you know, uh, who work in the ambulance service. Uh, it's not always true what comes up compared to when you get there. So on that day, there was three of us. Occasionally, there's four of us. And very occasionally, there's two of us. Um, we were very pleased there was three of us on that day. So I said, I was down as a trainee um, and I was working with one of the trained CSs and Hadassah. Obviously, it's a blue light response car, so somebody needs to be blue light trained and happy to drive on that particular car. 
that was both me and the, the CS. Typically and thankfully with these jobs, to a, to a point, obviously it's better to have a bigger team. Granted, when we got to this scene, it was already quite busy. So I wanted to touch on the idea of, of signs of life slash loss of output, which is a little bit of an interchangeable thought that I think Lewis may be talking about a little bit later. Kind of have some suggestions and it's, some of this is really basic, so don't overthink it. Uh, what are some of the, the basic signs of life that we're hoping to see in somebody that they're not in cardiac arrest? Yeah, breathing. Palpable pulse, yes. Any more? Conscious, yeah, so showing physically signs, so, so movement, I would put that down as. So there's five that are recognised, uh, depending on where you look at this, this topic. One that nobody's mentioned, um, you know, it's relevant for this case and this procedure, not necessarily true for uh, some other cardiac arrests. Electrical activity on the ECG, that's classed as a potential anyway sign of life. Now that is because PEA, for argument's sake, is, is pulseless, but that does not mean that the heart is not beating. Okay, so you would potentially take it as a, as a potential sign of life. Pulse obviously is a sign of life, some kind of respiratory effort, although you've got to be careful whether that is uh, agonal or not. Movement, purposeful movement of the limbs. And then the other one is reflexes. Now, that's probably harder to test, but the three that I've read are kind of accepted as signs of life reflex-wise are, is the pupil reacting? Uh, is the corneal reflex? So is the patient blinking when you're irritating the eye? Uh, and the gag reflex. So we arrive at the scene. So this scene's already a little bit developed compared to the one when I arrived as, as the ambulance crew. So the police, the OM and one double crewed ambulance are already on scene. The scene is thankfully secure. Uh, there's at least three police vehicles there. Uh, it'd already been cordoned off. The police tape was already up. CPR was in progress from police officers and the light was fading. So it's getting on for about half past four in, in winter now. Um, so it's already starting to get quite dark. You can see on the arrow again, the black arrow points to roughly where the job was. So middle of Erdington. Um, and again, I've put the run times on to Good Hope, which is your local emergency hospital there, 10 minutes. Heartlands, your trauma unit, 15 minutes. And again, good old QE. Our major trauma centre is 25 minutes away. So care team patient assessment. Now, uh, similar to the first job, so this patient was not actively bleeding, but had some blood-soaked clothing that had been cut away by the crews. He had an eye gel in, so this patient was a little bit further down the line, if you like, towards arrest or, or in arrest, certainly. So he had an eye gel for the airway. He was being ventilated. Uh, there had been no needle chest decompression done. Circulation-wise, uh, he had absent pulses. Obviously, CPR was in progress and the defib pads had been put on. He was obviously unresponsive. Exposure environment, he was laid on the streets, uh, he was on the pavement, he was extremely pale, his chest and his groin had been exposed, they've done a pretty pretty good job of getting this guy trauma naked, uh, and again he had a single visible at the time stab wound uh, to his left epigastric region, so significantly lower down the body uh, than the first chap. So we go back to the cardiac box, just out of interest, that's me again, and this stab wound was there on the cardiac box. So it's, it falls outside the, the cardiac box. It was a couple of inches lower. Uh, it, was, it was epigastric, it was below his iffy sternum. Um, 
but clearly spoiler alert this patient goes on to have a thoracotomy so we don't know for certain at the time potentially what's been used uh, what angle it was how long it was um, and it's obviously not unreasonable to think that if somebody stabbing with for argument's sake a, a six inch blade it certainly could be longer than that in an upward angle um, could certainly go through your diaphragm and uh, nick your heart in some way and that's absolutely what happened with this guy um, so the idea of the cardiac box is great but it's it's not a rule out uh, by any means of involving the heart so enhanced interventions that were taken so first thing Hadassah did when she got over to the patient was you need to stop CPR now Lewis is going to talk about this a little bit later uh, that's quite a foreign concept to road crews uh, certainly to the police um, and it takes some explaining sometimes um, because the natural thing that we want to do in patients in cardiac arrest is what we're trained to do we do it very well is do CPR on them um, it's not necessarily what they need depending on the, the reason for them being in cardiac arrest uh, and the other thing is the thoracotomy procedure obviously very busy around the chest so even if CPR was important for this chap it would have to be stopped to, to properly do the thoracotomy and obviously avoid things like Sharpe's injuries. So your um, thoracotomy starts with uh, thoracostomies and the reason for that is that if the patient's actually in arrest because of a uh, tension, then this is a definitive uh, release of the tension. So Hadassah did uh, thoracostomies. Now, if you look at my timeline at the bottom, at patient time 4.36, knife to skin, 4.37. Now, does that sound a little bit quick? Potentially, that's absolutely what it was, if not inside a minute, and I'll tell you for why. Because we'd had that update and we'd had that conversation in the car, she was going over there with that idea in her mind and we have our kit set up in the primary bag we have a chest trauma pouch and very very high up in that pouch as it is ordered is a scalpel so it's absolutely reasonable as long as we we know that this is what we're going to do that you can get the knife to skin and do those uh, thoracostomies within a minute of being at the patient's side in this patient so she did the thoracostomies his right lung was up so his right lung felt okay his left lung was down, not couldn't be felt through the thoracostomy and quite a lot of blood came out of that hole. So that's obviously not a good sign. At the same time, I was there and uh, my colleague, the other CS was there and we were just double checking, making sure that the coma again had been done as well as it could have been to optimize our care. So we cut the rest of his clothes off. Um, so he had a stab check again, absolutely vital and it was just a single wound. Oxygen, so we already had the eye gel. He was ventilating reasonably well, considering uh, he only had one lung. And his CO2 was 1.8, so not great, but not awful given the mechanism that had happened to him. Monitoring-wise, he just had the pads on. Um, he was in a PEA, uh, roughly 40 beats a minute, uh, slightly wide uh, complex. And access-wise, so we already had good 360 access. This guy's in the middle of the street, so perfect and he got a wide bore IV access. So these patients, your big major trauma patients, we should be looking for, for bilateral uh, or two points of, of wide bore access. Um, if we're giving this guy blood and they're all saying blood's thicker than water, well, it, it literally is. Um, and 
if you're trying to hurry blood into a patient, it's not going to go very well uh, through a blue or even through a, through a pink. Now, obviously, we're taught that something's better than nothing, but where possible, we should be seeking wide bore access. So he got wide bore uh, IV access. Now, he had a slightly longer uh, downtime in terms of loss of output. So we know that uh, he lost output roughly half past four. That was when the update was to us. So we already knew he'd lost output. Thoracotomy happened roughly 10 minutes later. Um, it's fair to say the timings on these uh, quite manic jobs can sometimes be a minute or two out. Nobody's generally stood there looking at the clock. Um, but yeah, roughly 10 minutes. And again, so this chat, uh, he had a quite substantial tamponade. So we found the reversible cause, we found his tamponade. So no, he had a, he had a tamponade. So part of the procedure is, is clearing a tamponade if there is one. Um, not only did he have a tamponade, he had a wound. So he had a wound to his left ventricle, which again was stapled. There are other options, but the staple is uh, really effective. Stapled to good effect, closed his wound. We estimated a litre and a half of blood was suctioned from his, his thorax, a lot of it from his left side. So certainly looking for 50% of his blood volume potentially um, was, was no longer in his body. Well, it's in his body, but not where it should be. Uh, he had some heart motion in terms of he had a little bit of contraction of his heart, uh, but his heart was empty. It was obviously empty. And it's a weird thing to say that you don't normally look at a heart without, you know, an actual heart, but it was, it was obviously empty. Um, it was a lot smaller. It was, it was kind of shriveled. Um, but it was, it was trying to beat, which obviously is a good sign. So he got blood products. Now, because the heart was empty, um, we prioritise, can we fill this heart? How quickly can we fill this heart? So there's a couple of things that we do. So Hadassah said to me, I need you to reach in there and do internal aortic compression, like it was the most normal thing in the world. So I did that, obviously something I'd never done before. I did that and we did something slightly old school, we raised his legs and they worked. So reasonably quickly, it, was, it became really obvious that his heart was filling. Um, now granted we're prioritizing the blood to his heart and then up to his brain and we're kind of blocking off his aorta but the idea behind it without wanting to go into it too much is that would eventually would be released and blood flow would be put back towards the other vital organs. Again you've got the heart massage which is effectively CPR but internal CPR and he was again he was intubated and the cardiac motion with him was improving uh, as we filled him with blood so the heart was looking like it was beating slightly more normally um, and this was reflected on his electrical activity on on his ECG therefore as it looked like our procedure had you know had a positive effect on him decision was made to uh, run with the gentleman um, and he was conveyed to the QE uh, obviously major trauma uh, with a police escort to get us there quite quickly any questions at all at that point and I've not asked you a lot for questions Move it. Oh, go on sorry So it's a good, really good question. So I'll only talk about this particular case. So we moved him and at the time his uh, aortic compression had to be kept on. So I had my hand uh, inside him as we were moving him, scooped him up, um, put him on the stretcher. Lewis, you're going to talk about that. Um, something we do slightly differently with that. Um, so I literally walked alongside the stretcher, uh, continuing the aortic compression. In terms of the, um, do we keep the thoracotomy open? Um, 
we do in the sense of that you you've still got to be continuating uh, continuing the the heart massage so you, you've got to be open um now this chap went on to get a, a shock in transport and for the shock uh the kind of procedure was okay let's close as much as possible um because the pads obviously are in the anatomically slightly different position um close as much as possible just to try and make the shock for the body as normal as possible typically keep it open so outcomes any thoughts on the outcomes i'll tell you okay case one so this was the self self-stabbing um, and the thoracotomy was uh, done on the back of the ambulance. It was a termination of resus at scene. So absolutely everything that could be done for the, the gentleman was done. As I said, the care team, one of the directors of the care team, Andy Thugs, oversaw this one. This, this guy had his wound closed. He was refilled with blood. And it came a point where actually, realistically, guys, we've done absolutely everything we can. We are not getting a positive uh, outcome. There is no point now uh, transferring him the, which would have been half an hour up to the QE. So sadly, the decision was taken that it was termination of resus uh, with that case. Now, case two, termination of resus at the hospital. So we got this guy to the hospital. Um, you know that because we left scene. Uh, I gave that away a little bit. Um, sadly, uh, he deteriorated further en route and the decision was made that, again, We'd done a really good job on him. We'd reversed everything that we could, but sadly there was little uh, extra that could be done for him in hospital. You may be asking, why do we bother? <laughs> why do we bother? What does the evidence say? Well, interestingly, there's not a vast amount of evidence. The evidence uh, base is, is quite wide. It's international. It involves the military. because obviously some of these events happen more frequently in the military. It doesn't always translate well over to um, the civilian uh, medical environment. So I've drawn from just one piece uh, of evidence. So the survival of uh, percentage figures for a patient who presents without signs of life from a penetrating uh, torso TCA, uh, traumatic cardiac arrest, without that patient getting a thoracotomy is between zero and three percent. So extremely low, um, which makes sense. If he's got a, a wound in his heart and you don't close it, why would he survive? Makes sense to me. Now, slightly different base, but the survival percentage who present with signs of life, which is already a more positive thing, obviously, and get a thoracotomy. Uh, in this one particular study, uh, it was between 15 and 21%. Um, so quite a dramatic uh, increase of that kind of niche little niche where he's presented with the team, he's got signs of life with the team who can do this procedure. They've gone on and done it. One in five, one in six of those patients have gone on to survive. And uh, quite a high proportion of them actually go on to do, um, you know, neuro neurologically very well as well, because effectively you're reversing reasonably quickly um, a reason that this has happened and, and medically they were well typically before this has happened. So. They do go on to do reasonably well when they survive from it. Now, there is a, a reasonably uh, recent study been announced for the UK, which uh, we're going to get quite a lot drawn from this. It's a Tetris study. It's a brilliant name. Trauma Emergency Thoracotomy for Resuscitation in Shock. So that's the UK audit. It's pretty much everywhere, pre-hospital and in hospital, that's going to do a uh, thoracotomy. 
um, it's going to kind of shape the future for this procedure um, and maybe narrow the field of exactly who gets it. So nearly done now, so just some take home points. Number one, and again, I say I'm doing this for Pete. Pete asked me to really drill this in for those who do work for the ambulance service. An early and then a regular update to the trauma desk or to the talk group is so important on these cases. It was the reason Hadassah was able to do knife to skin so quickly on that job because we knew where we were in the job. We had it ready to go in, in a sense. I've been there, we're on our way to a job, we're desperate for an update, we don't get it, it's frustrating, we can't formulate a plan. You know, magnify that times 10 for these real big trauma jobs. So that update is just so vital. Number one again, brilliant. Also number one, coma. They just can't be split, these two. Optimise your patient. So the idea of coma, and we all do it, but coma just puts a little bit of structure to it. So optimise your patient, make it easy for you to treat your patient. That's what coma is. So coma is close off oxygen, monitoring and access. Access being your access to the patient and your access into the patient effectively. Number one again, this is brilliant. Also number one, you just can't split these, stab check. So effectively don't miss another hole. Do not get focused and it's very easy. Some of you who've been to these jobs, you, you, you think or you think that you know that this one stab wound is the problem and actually we need to check that because I haven't actually looked at the figures but in my experience people do get stabbed more than once um, and they go for areas like the groin, like the buttocks, like the axilla, okay, we cannot miss these because um, they could be the reason that they die when you think you've done really well to fix the, the hole that you can see. Coming in at, again, number one is uh, the cardiac box, just that idea of the cardiac box, potentially rules in the need for this procedure, absolutely does not rule it out. Never be reassured um, by the fact that stab wounds in a certain place. Realistically, if it's anywhere in the torso, uh, the axilla or the back, there's a chance uh, that it's gone into the, kind of the central of the chest. Number one, monitor and acknowledge loss of the vital signs. So. I'll just take you quickly back to a reflection on the first job. We did not have a finger on this guy's pulse. Now, a patient who has a, a fading uh, carotid pulse, you're not going to know if it's really weak or if you're slightly in the wrong place from where you felt it earlier um, or if he hasn't got one. And the only real way to know is to keep your finger on that pulse, keep somebody with their finger on that pulse all the time and then that patient you will know when that pulse has dropped off. So that's a little tip to take away. If you've got the manpower, keep somebody with the finger on the pulse. And the final one, support your colleagues and seek support. Now, these cases are difficult. These cases are as graphic as you will ever see really in the field. There's been a number of instances of ambulance staff, of police actually leaving the, the field, uh, quitting their jobs because of, of seeing this not something we see normally but you guys have obviously come tonight there's something that you're interested in knowing more about if you end up on this job or you know a colleague who's ended up on this job I bet that was difficult wasn't it do you want to, do you want to talk about it um, and if it ends up being you and you end up struggling with it just seek some support and I'm not saying everybody will um, but acknowledge that this is really something really unique and you may never see it in your career and if you do see it you may go home and think about it before you go to bed 
And that's it for this Care Team Sessions podcast. A big thanks goes out to Luke for sharing both of those cases from two different perspectives. Hopefully you've picked up a few points there that can inform your practice. Don't forget this is part one of a two-part series on thoracotomy. Part two will be more of an in-depth look at the procedure itself by Care Team Dr. Lewis Miller. For more information on how to get your CPD certificate for listening to this podcast, head over to the podcast description. If you've enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and you can follow us on the usual social media outlets at WM Care Team. Thanks for listening.